1: at the Chicago Civic Opera House. I was 16. And I walked in that night with friends and sat down in my seat anticipating Judy Garland.
2: Clang, clang, clang with the trolley
1: She came on at 10. Ding,
2: ding, ding with the bell Sing went my heartstrings. From the moment I saw him, I fell.
1: She was alive, she was vibrant.
2: Chug, chug, chug went the motor. Thump, bump, bump went the bray. Thump, thump, thump went my heartstrings. When he smiled you could feel the car shake.
1: She added a couple extra songs during the course of the show. As
2: he started to leave, I took hold of his sleeve with my hand.
1: Did three encores. Two hours and five minutes later, they turned the house lights up, and nobody left. Nobody left they started to clap and chant rhythmically, we want Judy, we want Judy. They just didn't want it to be over because for that two hours, that auditorium was the center of the world. And after about three minutes of this chant, all of a sudden the house lights went out, curtain went back up, she came on smoking a cigarette and sang another song.
2: I really want more, more. Aren't you tired of it? Ah! Right. Well, we got, we got one more.
1: My friends and I were down there at the edge of the stage. Good night. I love you so much. Good night. God bless. And so when it was over and we had to turn around and walk up the aisle and get out, it took a while because there were so many people to leave before us. We were about a fourth of the way up the aisle when all of a sudden I stepped out of the island into a row of chairs. I was having this emotion that I was not looking for, that just kind of swept in and took over me. I wish everybody I love and everybody I'm ever going to love could have been here because I'm never going to be able to explain what she made happen or the pure joy of it.
3: I'm Sayward Darby. And I'm Arielle Ramshindani. Welcome to No Place Like Home. Episode 3, Terribly Happy. The Judy Garland you just heard, that's the one you know. The household name, the star, the voice. What you might not know is that she almost didn't exist.
4: Following is tape number one of the notes for the Judy Garland autobiography. Hi. <laughs> to begin with, let's begin at the beginning. Where were you born?
2: I was born in uh, Grand Rapids, Minnesota, uh, June tenth, nineteen twenty-two. But I really was unwanted. Uh, my mother didn't want to have any more children.
3: Her parents, Frank and Ethel Gum, already had two little girls. Ethel wanted to have an abortion, and Frank even talked to a doctor about it, but they were told the procedure was too risky.
2: She did everything to get rid of me. She rolled, <clears throat> She must have rolled down nineteen thousand flights of stairs, jumped off of tables, and, and for some reason, I was a very stubborn child, and when, was not about to be shaken loose.
3: So Judy was born. Except she wasn't Judy back then. The Gums named their third daughter Frances, but everyone called her Baby. Frank and Ethel Gum had met as vaudeville performers. In Grand Rapids, they ran a theater. The family lived in a white clapboard house with a porch. They were always entertaining people.
5: The neighbors loved to come to the Gum House because It was so active and vibrant and singing going on. The staircase landing here was the gum stage.
6: That's John Kelsch. He's showing us around Judy's childhood home, which is meticulously restored with old wallpaper and place
2: settings. It was the most beautiful house that I've ever known. The house was everything that represents family. Clean, old-fashioned, beautiful,
3: not frightening, and gay. Soon, the Gum girls were performing around town, including at their parents' theater. Baby Gum, the child who hadn't been wanted, ended up having the biggest voice and the biggest personality.
2: My grandmother threw me onto my own father's stage, and I started to sing Jingle Bells. And I wouldn't stop until the 17th cars, and I was awfully upset to be taken off stage.
3: It was a happy childhood. In the summer, the gum girls swam in Lake Pokegama, to the west of town. In the winter, they sledded and made snow angels.
2: What I do remember was terribly happy. Terribly happy, and possibly the only uh, kind of uh, normal, uh, carefree time in my life. And that was only for three years, you
4: know. When Judy was about four years old, they had to leave Grand Rapids. Frank, it turns out, had a predilection for teenage boys. And two of the ushers at his theater complained that he was approaching them and trying to do something with them.
6: That's Gerald Clark, a biographer to the stars. Before he published his book about Judy, he wrote about Truman Capote. We asked multiple people in Grand Rapids about the story that Clark is telling about Frank Gum. Many people knew it, and there's a lot of evidence. But not everyone agrees that it was the reason the family left town.
5: They were really well-liked here. They were given going-away parties and how they would be missed that's why i can't really believe that he was forced out of town it just doesn't make sense i i i do think he was probably bisexual
2: my father sold the theater that he owned and we all got into a car and and headed for hollywood
4: were you that bad that he had to sell the theater and move out of town or were you that good that he wanted to go to hollywood
2: I don't know. He never told me one way or the other. Nobody else did in my family either.
3: Frank and Ethel settled in Lancaster, California, north of Los Angeles. They put their girls on local stages, where they danced and sang charming audiences. At first, their act was known as the Gumdrops. But gum sounded too much like glum. So right before a show, they became the Garland Sisters. Baby Gum changed her name to Judy after a popular song. Hollywood took notice of Judy Garland when Ida Coverman, Louis B. Mayer's personal secretary at MGM, bugged the studio chief to have her come in for an audition.
5: She pestered him for weeks on end. You've got to hear this girl sing. She'd heard Judy sing at the Wilshire Able Theater in downtown Los Angeles. And she just kept bugging Mayor, and he said, we don't need another tiny, chubby little 13-year-old singer. And so finally he relented. Saturday morning, the phone rings at the gum house. Frank, Judy's father, yelled out the window, come on, baby, MGM wants to hear you sing. He just packed her in the car in her grass-stained blue jeans, and they'd coached her to sing this one song for him, uh, Zing went the strings of my heart. She sang that for Louis B. Mayer, and he said, Well, sign her up.
3: Judy signed a contract with MGM and became her family's breadwinner. But just as her movie career was about to
7: take off, Frank Gum passed away. There are some photos taken of Judy from the first photo shoot at MGM just like a week or days after her dad died. And if you look into her eyes in some of those photos, you just see her sorrow.
6: This is Michelle Russell. She's the author of a book about Frank Gum's family. She lives in Murfreesboro, Tennessee,
7: where Frank was born. She was certainly going into a huge system of something she couldn't even understand what it was she was going to face. And when her father died, she had thought to herself, now who's going to protect me?
6: From the start, her work at MGM was grueling. Long car rides to set in the early morning and choreography to learn. To help her keep up with the exhausting schedule, Judy's mother intervened. Here's Gerald Clark again.
4: And so her mother started her off on pep pills. Then when Judy couldn't sleep at night, then she started her off on sleeping pills. This was when Judy was about nine years old. And this was the beginning of a disaster for Judy, which really bedeviled her for the rest of her life.
6: Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz was Judy's first starring role. She was worked to the bone. Here's John Fricky, who you heard at the beginning of the episode, talking about the concert
1: they were working six days a week only Sundays off MGM sent the hair and makeup people to her house at six in the morning while she was making Wizard of Oz and they would do her hair and her makeup there and she would drive through the studio gate and go right on the set because that's when her day actually started when she arrived at the studio to start work Judy's tutor would be there and take her from the set into a little trailer and she would go right from acting into school. Six minutes of history and eight minutes of French and four minutes of English. And then they'd say, okay, Judy, we're ready for you. Some place
2: where there isn't any
1: trouble. Studio, rehearse, film, school, film, school. Studio, rehearse, film, school, film, school. school, studio, rehearse.
3: Judy later wrote in her unpublished autobiography that she was harassed on set including by Louis B. Mayer. In many ways, her body was not her own.
1: MGM, you know, we're not shy about saying in front of her, you know, we have to do something about your nose, your teeth, your hair.
4: It's a twister! It's a twister!
1: They were trying to monitor what she ate in the studio commissary. She can have chicken soup, gotta watch her weight.
2: There's no place like
1: you're playing a little girl. You cannot have a 14-, 15-, 16-year-old girl's bosom.
2: A place where there isn't any trouble.
1: She was strapped down to play Dorothy because Dorothy was supposed to be 12, not 16.
2: Are you a good witch or a bad witch? I'm not a witch at all. I'm Dorothy Gale from Kansas.
3: The Wizard of Oz made Judy a bona fide movie star. People always seem to want more from her.
1: She had her first complete breakdown when she was 20 years old, having made like five or six pictures back-to-back. I mean, it's just, you know, keep her working, keep her working. Don't irritate the studio, because the studio had the sword of Damocles hanging over all of them. Everybody was scared.
3: Judy married musician David Rose when she was 19. He was more than a decade older. Before long, Judy was pregnant.
4: She was desperate to have a child. She loved children. But Ethel, her mother, said, no, you can't have a child. She went to Louis B. Mayer at MGM. And he said, no, no, you're, you're a, our teenage star. You can't, can't have a child. So she had an abortion.
3: In Grand Rapids, people didn't know about the ugliness behind the scenes of Judy's life. To them, she was all glitz and glamour. When she visited her hometown right before she filmed The Wizard of Oz, people watched her step off a train with impeccable makeup, wearing a leopard print coat.
5: And the town gave her a royal welcome. Here she spoke to all the high school students in the auditorium, but she wasn't allowed to sing because she was under contract with MGM. Isn't that sad? They wouldn't even let her sing a song.
9: The first time I ever saw her, I think it was Carnegie Carnegie Hall, I didn't really realize the, the power of her voice. My dad sat down and talked to us and said, uh, yeah, your mom is one of the biggest stars in the world. And I kind of went, wow.
6: This is Joe Luft, one of Judy Garland's three children. He was born in 1955 to Judy and her third husband, Sid Luft. We met him at his condo near Los Angeles. He showed us a lot of pictures of him with his mother. In one, he's dressed up in a dinner jacket at a restaurant, and he and Judy have the same grin.
9: A lot of good memories. She would sing around the house and sing to us at night She sang to me all the time at home. She was great. You know, there would be stars coming over to our house all the time. There would be, you know, people calling, my mom.
3: One of those people was John F. Kennedy. If the president was having a bad day, he'd call and ask Joe to put his mother on so she could sing Over the Rainbow. Judy adored her children. Some of Joe's favorite memories are of his mother sharing her love of music with him. He also remembers that she talked about the Wizard of Oz a lot.
9: I would always ask questions and how things worked and all the tricks behind the Wizard of Oz and, and how the Wicked Witch uh, melted at the end, how that worked. And it was done by a trapdoor. She would just tell me she loved doing it. When I first saw it, I got scared because she got taken away by the uh, monkeys. and <laughs> It scared me. To death. I thought she was really kidnapped. They had to get me on the phone to her. She was in Europe at the time. She goes, No, no, it's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm fine. I haven't been kidnapped.
3: By the time Joe was born, Judy's career had taken many twists and turns. She used drugs and alcohol to cope with all the stress, and she developed an addiction. MGM eventually terminated her contract in 1950. Judy rehabilitated her career with a concert tour. This led to new movie roles, like the lead in A Star is Born. In the early 60s, she had her own weekly TV show, but only for one season. Judy's life was a cycle of comebacks, of heartaches and triumphs. But she never had full control of her money. Other people did. Her husbands, agents, managers. She never had enough for her family.
9: It was hard because she would be away a lot on the road or in concert somewhere. And I'd always get upset with her when she came back. And and then I'd go, you're going out on the road again? She goes, I have to. I have to do it. I have to go. And it was just like, you know, she had to do it. There was no other way.
3: Joe started going on tour with his mom when he was only 10 years old. He saw her continuing substance abuse up close.
9: I was in an elevator once and I was going up to my floor and there was a a guy in the elevator and he looks at me and he goes, is she sober? And I looked over at him and I went like, I don't know. (laughs) I was about 12, 13. That was hard for me to deal with situations like that, where people were just like really mean.
3: Night after night, Joe also saw his mother's magic— no matter what was going on in her life judy could always connect with her audience people couldn't get enough of her
9: we're in boston and we're leaving in a limousine and all these people were around the car and they were like i thought, I thought we were going to get stampeded or or mugged and i was going mom we're going to die she goes no we're not <laughs> there were so many people there and they were like rocking the car or just banging on the car <laughs> just going Judy, Judy, Judy.
4: In the middle to late 60s she would give concerts outdoor concerts in the summertime and a hundred thousand people would come but then she would go back and she would say uh, I'm all alone. It's a sad, sad thing. You can be in front of, you can be adored by 100,000 people applauding, loving you, and then you go back to your dressing room and you're all alone. That was Judy.
2: And I'm emotional, yeah. I'm a woman. I'm emotional. I'm not something you wind up and put on a stage that sings Carnegie Hall album and you put her in a closet and forget to invite her to the party. That's given for her. The ages leave her behind. I'm mad. I am mad.
9: Something happened at the Palace Theater and she missed a performance one night. I couldn't, I, I was on the phone with her all night trying to get her to come and she wouldn't, she wouldn't do the show. A no
2: place where there isn't any trouble. There's no place like home. There's no place like
1: home. I think she had her concept of home in her three kids who were the end all and be all to her. I think what Judy was forced to fight for was stability and health. I'm Dorothy Gale from Kansas.
2: I wanted to believe and I tried my damnedest to believe in the rainbow that I tried to get over and I couldn't. So what? Lots of people can't. I love a lot of things that the people around me that have surrounded me all my life, all my 44 goddamn marvelous, failing, successful, and hopelessly tragic and starlit years.
7: when judy died i was um, i don't know maybe 14 years old i remember they announced on the radio a tornado came through kansas and a little girl named dorothy left us judy garland died today at the age of 47.
9: It was horrible. I mean, it was just like, oh, I knew this day was coming. I never wanted to be here, and now it's here, and you don't know how to deal with it.
1: Ray Bolger, uh, the scarecrow, said at best, he said, Judy Garland didn't die. She just plain wore out.
3: Judy Garland died of an overdose in 1969 in a hotel room in London. One of the readings at her funeral was a Bible passage that she loved, from Corinthians. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass, or a tinkling cymbal.
6: When we visited Grand Rapids, we went to the office of the local paper, the Herald Review. In the archives, a room full of big bound books, there are articles about the stolen ruby slippers. Ruby slippers stolen. Someone walked off with a pair of the red ruby slippers worn by Judy Garland in the 1939 movie Wizard of Oz. But the most telling thing we found was Judy Garland's obituary. 1969. Here we go. Born in Grand Rapids, singer Judy Garland dies in London at 47. At the age of 16, she came to Grand Rapids for a visit. Judy asked to see the house where she had lived and the high school she would have attended. Hmm. Miss Garland was 47 and had been married for the fifth time on March 15th. Frances F. Grand Rapids girl who found fame and fortune but missed happiness. The obituary felt cold, almost judgmental. Truth is, the person Judy became embodied everything that her hometown wasn't. We
10: were started out as a logging town. Uh, We had Grand Rapids, of course. There was a big, huge rapids here. So they were able to dam it off and to use that power to create the different industries around here.
6: That's Lila Crow taking us on a tour of the local historical society. The land where Grand Rapids sits once belonged to indigenous people, the Ojibwe. The soil is tinted red from iron ore. That's one reason white settlers took the land for themselves. They wanted to mine it. Lila gave us a book about the town from 1941. Chapters are called White Men Find the Rapids
3: and Men of Brawn." By the time Judy Garland died, a lot had changed in Grand Rapids. But the town was still very much a reflection of its original image. A place for hunting, fishing, and men of brawn. Not a place that wanted to celebrate a glamorous but troubled Hollywood star. When John Kelsch organized Judy Garland Festivals, starting in the late 1980s, to some people, they seemed out of place.
5: This area is so far removed from Hollywood and that whole life. You know you couldn't be anywhere more removed really it's It's not the culture here we'd have uh, festival dinners we'd have people raise their hand uh three hundred people for dinner. How many states are represented thirty four states two two different countries. Nobody from Grand Rapids was at those dinners.
4: The Judy Garland Festival in Grand Rapids,
9: Minnesota is in full swing, right? Dorothy, Dorothy, scared.
8: The fun continues tomorrow with a Garland Film Festival in a ribbon cutting ceremony to dedicate a yellow brick road.
6: Kelsch found an ally in a man named John Miner. Around town, they're known as the Two Johns. Here's Miner
4: uh, My mother and grandmother used to babysit Judy. And, uh, and that's, that's how I got involved. And she, she was born and raised there with her sisters and then left for, for California for uh, bigger and uh, better things than uh, Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Growing
6: up, Miner delivered newspapers to the people who lived in the house where Judy spent her early years. As an adult, he ended up running a different kind of paper business, making fast food boxes and scratch-and-sniff stickers. It was very successful. Miner loves Grand Rapids so much that he wants to sell it to you. He calls this making a promotion commotion.
4: We do a lot of promotion to get people to northern Minnesota. It's about three hours north of Minneapolis. And um, it's great. It's a great place to live. Uh, It's a beautiful place to live. The trees, the the different kinds of trees, probably 15 different kinds.
3: In Judy Garland, Miner saw an opportunity. He wanted to make her legacy a permanent part of the town. He got involved with the festivals, and he loved when movie stars came to them. In a parade
6: that seemed to stretch for miles, one float stuck out. The original carriage from The Wizard of Oz, movie star Mickey Rooney, was riding in it.
4: John did a good job. I'd like to introduce John Kelch and I'd like you to thank him for putting this thing all together. Thank you so much.
3: For Kelsch's birthday one year, Miner gave him more than $50,000 to buy Judy's childhood home. The idea being that it would eventually become part of a Judy Garland museum. Right on cue, some people in town balked.
5: I heard comments around town, why should we honor Judy Garland? She never came back. She was a pillhead. head. Um, we didn't like her lifestyle.
6: Other Judy lovers in Grand Rapids paid to put up billboards on the road into town, advertising that she was from there. But people complained.
5: So we had to take them down. I alerted the Star Tribune in Minneapolis about it. and They ran a big story. The headline was, No Sign of Judy. And then I was just berated by editorials and in the paper. Oh, you know, we have hockey players that are more, much more famous than Judy Garland. You know, why don't we honor them?
10: They did not want the town to have that brand. They didn't mind having the museum telling the story, the theater, uh, things about her, but they did not want the town to brand itself as the
3: birthplace of Judy Garland. But eventually, Miner and Kelsch raised the money to build the Museum of Their Dreams. It opened in 2003, and visitors came, lots of them. It felt like Grand Rapids' opinion of Judy was thawing.
5: Well, I always felt that uh, Judy contributed so much to broad patterns in American history, and it's so much with The Wizard of Oz, it's so much a part of the American experience, being an American. I just felt that her story outweighs anything these local people are saying because I knew how important she was. I mean, in so many ways. Her house is just as important as a president's house, in my view.
3: Nothing from Judy's life was more famous or more important to her fans than the ruby slippers. So for us to have somebody steal something like
10: that, that was hard on a lot of people because we really don't have the crime level up here. I mean, we struggle with drugs and alcohol. We, we do that. But the overall crime has not been like it is where we see on TV, the cities and stuff like that.
3: And, you know, the rumors all started. One rumor was that a person who worked at the museum had taken the shoes, that it was Kelsch that he had smuggled the ruby slippers out of the building so that he could wear them at home. The theft unraveled mixed emotions in Kelsch. Sometimes he wanted to disappear, to get away from all the scrutiny. But even negative attention was attention. I
10: was in his office, and he looked at me, he goes, you know... Even though this is a negative, he goes, Lila, we've had more media coverage than Grand Rapids has ever had on anything. And I said, well, I recognize that, John, but you might not want to say that too loud out in the neighborhood.
3: One year passed. Then two, three, four. The ruby slippers were still missing. Around town, even if they didn't think the theft was an inside job, people tended to agree on one thing there had to be a local connection. Some teenagers had taken the shoes, on a dare. Or maybe local criminals, up to no good. People speculated that the Slippers were somewhere nearby, in an abandoned mine pit, or under a bridge in the nearby city of Duluth. They were sure that someone in Grand Rapids knew something. They're afraid that it's somebody local. I think
10: that's their biggest fear. I've had some people even tell me, they said, you know what, maybe we don't need to know
3: because we don't want one of our neighbors to be the person that did it. When she took trips, Lila Crow started introducing herself as being from the place where the ruby slippers were stolen. That's how much the theft had come to define Grand Rapids. The town wasn't just linked to Judy Garland forever. It was linked to a piece of her story that was missing.
4: The citizens were the victim of the theft because
1: Grand Rapids is known for Judy Garland. Judy Garland is the slippers. The slippers are Judy Garland, right? I don't know why we don't have the slippers painted on our water tower, honestly.
6: This is Bob Stein, the Grand Rapids police officer you heard in episode one.
1: So the slippers are something important to their community. They are the community. And so therefore, they are the victims of that. In my mind, when I think of it, they're the victims of the theft, they their identity with the slippers were stolen from them. You know, and that's that'd be a terrible thing to lose your past in a community. A lot of communities, when they started, needed to have something that made them what they are.
3: The police in Grand Rapids took the case seriously. They considered every angle, including the possibility that there was a local connection. They worked for years to find the slippers, with no luck. But eventually, they caught a break. Next time on No Place Like Home.
1: There were
4: slipper sightings all over the place. We get calls every week. We just saw someone wearing them.
1: There Ruby slippers. We're at a yard sale. And I, I saw them. I just bought them for 10 bucks oh
10: well it's got to be the mob it's got to be an inside job
4: they stuffed them in a paint can and threw them in a lake oh we just were at a restaurant and we saw them on the shelf
10: well maybe it's in the bottom of tioga
2: pit
9: they got to be in the pit they got to be in the pit who did this and how do they do it
2: maybe they didn't realize what they were getting into
4: you cannot rule anything out when it comes to art theft we just got calls last week from a psychic
3: no Place Like Home is a presentation, direction, and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio, in partnership with The Atavist magazine. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran. Written by Ariel Ramshandani. Narrated by Ariel Ramshandani and me, Sayward Darby. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Edited by Alistair Sherman. Produced by Paige Heimson and Valerie Thomas. Engineering research and production support by Adam Pershibu. Bill Schultz, Ian Mont, Bob Tabador, Patrick Antonetti, and Sean Cherry. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Marketing and publicity by Brian Swarth, Hilary Schuff, Melissa Wester, and Meredith Tiger. Series artwork by Kurt Courtenay. Season one of No Place Like Home is based on reporting by Ariel Ramshandani for The Atavist magazine. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company.